Charles Tolliver, take me back to the beginning. I'm so honoured to have you here today. Um, thank you for your time. And uh, thank you for what you've given us, fans of music and solid heritage. Tell me about your background and how you got into it. And Well, we can go from when I was eight years old, my grandmother, church lady, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, where I was born. Um, I kept telling her, hey, mama, because in the South, in those days, I don't know about now, the grandmother was mama because the mother, your mother was maybe out working or doing something. So from the from the womb until you were, I don't know how, you know, the only person you saw in front of your eyes was the grandmother, you know. So uh, I said, mama, um, I, I saw a trumpet in a little shop and I want to get that. So she saved her little pennies and uh, we went there and in the shop was sheet music hanging over this old carnet and it was sheet music of Dizzy Gillespie, you know. And um, I, I got the trumpet and I could play it right away you know, to the surprise of everybody. You know, I didn't have to really have any lessons on it. And basically, fast forward, uh, the family moved to New York uh, when I was 10 years old. And um, I think uh, at that point, uh, my uncle, her son, well, let's go back to Jacksonville before leaving. I think... At least I was five years old, and my parents were pretty hip, you know, especially my father, you know, the zoot suits and all that kind of stuff, you know. And he had just come out of the World War II, you know, he was fighting over here in Germany. And um, they had those original 78 LPs, uh, Jazz at the Philharmonic, uh, Norman Grant's. And I would sit down on the old Victrola and put those things on and listen to to that. And that really was what got me going. And the person on that, there were two people on that record that really sort of cemented, you know, my psychic and, with the music. One was Charlie Shavers, who did a lot of the Norman Grant's uh, concerts and jazz at the Philharmonic. You know, trumpet, and the other, I wasn't to find out who he was until later. But and then I remember reading his name, and that was Charlie Parker, because he was the most different of all of the other giants that were on there: Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster, uh, Lester Young, of course, great original folks with the music. But when when Norman Grants put him on the, you know, those few things that he recorded, he was the most different. And I heard that, you know, it was it was just more fluid. I hate to use it more, you know, in this sense, but his he had a fluidity that you know, I wasn't hearing in the others, even at five years old. So that stuck with me. So I started scatting all those things, you know. So by the time you know, once I got to New York, um, I started trying to put that on on the trumpet, you know, and um, I met. You know, like-minded teenagers, uh, and so my uncle, he would uh, at the time you could a, a lesson, a trumpet lesson, where you go and you learn how to read a little bit. You know, 
it wasn't about showing me how to do anything. It was just, you know, just take some trumpet lessons to read out of the famous Auburn's book. But he had a record called Max Roach and Clifford Brown at Basin Street. And that changed me forever because I, I was able to then translate what I was hearing Charlie Parker into the Clifford Brown solos and it all said, I see. I see how this works. And uh, from that, that point on, it was, you know, laying with the trumpet through grade school and high school. And um, there was a, a break of one or two years when I went to college because I wanted to, you know, perhaps have a, another profession or a second profession just in case, you know, look after the family. So I went to Howard University, which at the time didn't have a jazz department. Now every university has it around the world. And um, I was studying pharmacy because I, I liked mathematics. I still do. I like mixing. So I was working uh, in a local uh, apothecary <laughs> where all the medicine that was given, that's what that would be the same all around the world. They mixed the medicine. So I watched those doctors mixing this medicine. So, oh, I want to learn how to do that. So they said, okay, well, here, you, you, know, you apply for these schools. And, you know, and I was accepted. And, uh, but when I got to Howard University, they had just built a new fine arts building there. And I, I had just started to want to write music. And uh, I went down. I spent more time in the fine arts building in the piano rehearsal studios you know as much as in my pharmacy classes and something just clicked in about the junior year I could have gone on and finished but something clicked you know I, I was practicing in what is called Rock Creek Park I don't know if you ever heard that that's a park that you can see the White House and everything else from around that park and I used to go in that park and practice every day and just something really clicked, you know, I felt, oh. And I just, uh, you know, came back home. And make a long story short, went around doing jam sessions. And I met um, a man whose name is Jim Harrison. He's still alive, actually. And he says, hmm, okay. Uh, you know what? Uh, I have a fan club, the Jackie McLean fan club. He actually had a fan club, you know, which, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, I said, okay. He says, you know, Jackie's sort of like, you know, in hospital right now, he's, you know, sort of drying out, getting himself together. You go there and see him. And I did, I went there and I said- How old were you? I was uh, 20. And, uh, Jackie came out with his house, you know, coat on and slippers. You know, he took a look at me and he said, okay. You know, I said, Jim Harrison sent me to see you. And, you know, maybe you might think about me. You know, you come out and you want to start a band. Well, he did. And I don't know why. I mean, you know, there was still everybody alive that he wanted to use. If he wanted to leave Morgan and everybody. And so I went to his house, and he said, okay, um, do you have any tunes? I said, yeah, I've been, I wrote me a few tunes when I was in college. And he said, okay. He says, here, these three tunes I'm going to do, 
and I'm going to let you do these three songs, and you're going to be on my next record day. And he hadn't heard me yet. Yeah, so, I, you know, I tell people that they say, no, I don't believe that can happen. I, you know, you have to hear somebody beforehand. I said, no, hey, you know, that's what happened. You know, he was going on his, his the guy who created his fan club with him. The guy said, you know, here's a guy, you know. And um, and where had the guy who had the fan club heard you? Had he heard at you? At jam sessions. Oh, jam sessions, yeah. right. So, so he just he trusted him. him. Yeah, he trusted him. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, that's, It's Time was the name of the record, the first one. And that's still just about my favorite record because it was very dangerous, that, that record. <laughs> because Jackie was already, he had already done Destination Out and uh, Let Freedom Ray, you know, and he was still a bebop master, but he wanted to, you know, he didn't want to be left out of anything that was, my train was already busy with what he was doing. And uh, and Jackie on the alto saxophone, for me, was just as important because he, he was able to, to take what was supposed to be the avant-garde freedom thing and, and make something out of it. And he said, you know, I'm, this is not, you know, the two five ones that we normally do, you know, this is gonna be a little bit different, so think about that. And that, that's still, one, I think, one of, the, one of the great recordings because it's the only time that Herbie and Roy played together, Roy Haynes and Herbie Haynes, that's the only recording that they've ever been on together. And uh, Cecil McBee was brand new, and he was on it. I was to meet him for the first time on that recording. Were you nervous? I, uh, my, uh, shaking in my boots, uh, especially um, at the rehearsal. Because Alfred Lyons had a, it was a famous place where he took everybody to rehearse. He did it two days, three hours, um, at a place called Len Oliver Studio on 89th and Broadway. It's no longer there, of course. And uh, from there, we'd meet at another famous place, which is now, <clears throat> it's called the Empire Hotel. It's still there. It's in front of the, you know, Lincoln Center. You know, the Opera House and, and the Metropolitan. Everything is there. And there, you meet in an old checker cab, like the one that we just rode, uh, rode in here. Um, and Alfred would have a box of, you know, lunch or whatever, and yeah, a couple bottles of liquor or whatever. That's how it was. That was the routine. Meet there and drive over across the George Washington Bridge to Rudy Van Gelder's studio. And then you would, in three hours, you'd do the record. And I, that record, it was my first record, you know, I'm untested totally. And um, it wasn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> Which song should we play off the album now? Off of uh, It's Time? Yeah. Uh, well, there was there was uh, cancellation which dealt with okay now we're gonna we're, we're gonna see what this new thing is all about how you know how to negotiate that and uh, Riverlot which is my name my last name spelled backwards Tolliver spelled backwards and a ballad I wrote called Truth which is I mean I like everything but I like Truth because it was you know sort of it was the last thing that we did on the recording and uh, came out nice.
Enough, Jackie McLean is an interesting one, isn't he? Because he's an artist who doesn't really get the deep credibility or the deep respect that he he's as important as, yeah. as, as, John, as far as I'm concerned as John Coltrane. Uh, who, if everybody know anything about me, you know, he's that's that's my man, you know. Uh, but I wouldn't be in this if it hadn't been for Jackie McLean. Maybe I would have gotten in a little bit later, but not as fast as, as that. I was 20 years old, so, uh, and untested, you know. So he's like my mentor, he's my everything. I wouldn't have been in it had well, it not been for him. One of the stories I'd heard once, so I'm, I'm sure this is completely wrong, but um, apparently when you look at all the record sleeves for Jackie McLean, you can't tell whether he's white or black. And... Was there a thing about Blue Note trying to... Was no. There? Jackie uh, uh, was, quote-unquote, black. Um, were they trying his, to... His, his, his mother and father were just, like, you know, lighter right. color. So it wasn't a record label kind of trying to... Absolutely not. Yeah. Because mm. that was... Uh, no. no. So Jackie McLean, um, quite a while with him then. So two or three records touring. Three. And we played and... Um, so, you know, there was a very famous club called Slugs at, at the time when all this was happening, all this turmoil politically going on, John Coltrane and everything. What year are we talking? We're talking 1962, 63, 64, 65, that three-year uh, situation there. And um, Slugs was um, an incubator for the new, so-called new thing that was going on. Everybody played there except Miles. I think, you know, even, you know, Cannonball, you, you know, just everybody. And um, actually, the owners of the place hadn't started music yet, and Jackie lived up one block away in some, uh, what we call, um, you know, low-income housing uh, projects, we call it, you know. And um, I guess he would stop over there and... The guy said, hey, you know, can you want to bring a band in here? It was a real saloon with sawdust on the floor and a very long bar. People come in there, you know, to have their whatever they like. And there's a real saloon, sawdust. And we open up Slugs for the first time with a band that uh, Jackie was uh, fronting it with me. Larry Willis on piano, John Orr on bass, and Billy Higgins on the drums. And since I'm, I was a guy who was always about, you know, who's the drummer, you know, Billy Higgins and I, you know, became very close. And so from that point on, if I ever were recording or 
not actually recording, but, you know, having a little gigs, you know, I would always ask uh, Billy, and he was so gracious, you know, as he always was. And so he was a real buddy and a fantastic musician. Um, so we opened up Slugs for the first time, uh, and then from then on, the rest is history. I mean, a lot of most groups, like I said, except um, Miles Davis, to my recollection, um, uh, Charles Lloyd formed his band that's, uh, with a young Keith uh, Jarrett um, and uh, Cecil McBee. And I forget who the drummer was, but it wasn't Jack DeJanette yet. It's just it, part of the story I wanted to mention was that, you know, I'm, I'm all about the drums as well as, you know, the trumpet. And so when I was working with Jackie, of course, Billy Higgins was busy working with everybody. So it was, he couldn't be a regular drummer. Jackie said, I said, Jackie, you know, at the jam session where Jim Harrison had heard me, I said, I just heard a, a, a drummer, a young drummer, just came from Chicago. His name is Jack DeJanette. DeJanette, you know, long name, DeJanette, never heard of him. I said, man, you know, that's, how, that's what I'd like to, you know, for you to get, you know, to play drums in this band. And so that was Jack DeJanette's introduction big time, you know, into this thing. And uh, of course, we went on to make, uh, we made one record together with Jackie. And immediately after that, Charles Lloyd said, well, you know, got him in his band. And that became that big time trio for him that, you know, you know what it did for him, you know. And unheard of Keith Jarrett, and unheard of uh, Dijonette, and um, Cecil McBee. Yeah. What a band. Mm-hmm. What a time. I mean, did you realize at the time in your psyche that this is an important period? Did you realize you were making music that was going to be so significant? No. We just, until today, I just wanted to belong. So I wasn't even thinking about the significance of how it would be historically later on. As long as I was a part of it, I was happy. And um, there was also one other man who was very important to me, and that was Hank Mobley. I didn't get a chance to record with him, but I sure, we, we played a lot at that place called Slugs. And um, he too, because everybody gravitates into a, a vicinity where the, you know, the, the music is. So instead of being living uptown in Harlem, a lot of guys were moving down to where that was. So they could be down there and, and be able to go into the fire spot, which is just across town. Uh, in, in the village and Hank Mowry was living one block away and uh, I mean I think for those those years I was at his house every day you know playing with him the stuff that he was to re, you know record later and I think I didn't get a chance to, to record him because you know I, I started working with Gerald Wilson and, and things after that and Horace Silver but uh, he was very important to me and Everybody considers, and I, I think it, we could bet on it, that he was probably the most lyrical of the, the modern jazz tenor saxophone players. And um, for sure, Ronnie Scott loved him because he, he you know, he was, he, you could hear, you know, Hank Mobley and his style of playing. And he's another one who kind of just fell in between the cracks like Jackie McLean right I've just been reading his book actually it's an interesting book and interesting life and some amazing records I mean he must have released what a dozen records or more on Blue Note I mean Alfred Lyons he was like a staple you know 
Him and Billy Higgins they're on mm. every on every track. Lee Morgan. Lee Morgan. Mm. What's the what's the Hank Mobley record we should play today? Just to kind of uh, what's the one that you would recommend that we listen to right now? Oh, I don't. I, I don't know. So many. I quite like the morning after. I think. Yeah, yeah that's a yeah. beautiful track. Yeah. I was about to push. Should play that. Yeah, sure. Oliver, this is so great. Um, so basically, Jackie. That's McClain, my beginnings. That's your beginnings. I mean, Jackie McLean was the real breakthrough. Yes. Um, and then I can say one other thing. Yeah. That links with um, you know having come here, um, you know, with Max Roach in 1967. But prior to that, let's say 1960, into 64, 65, um, we would all go to hear all of these giants or no matter where they were the five spot was a very important place because Thelonious would be in there for a month at a time or Mingus would be in there for a month or so at a time so we had a chance to you know hear these you know this thing uh, develop and Max Roach was playing the five spot with a band that he had at his, with his wife at the time Abby Lincoln uh, um, a young Freddie Hubbard who had just you know, after those incredible years of Law Blakey and the Jazz Messengers through 1965, when, you know, they all decided they were going to really, you know, be their own band leaders, including Wayne going with Miles. Um, but Freddie was playing in, in Max's group at that time, uh, temporarily, and with uh, Jimmy Spaulding on alto, um, Ronnie Matthews on piano, and Eddie Kahn, which was a very tall bass player like Dexter like six feet five or something and um, so I said to Max you know I got up enough courage you know I said you know because I knew Freddie Freddie and I were very close always close and I knew he was just going to be there for a minute you know until he made his own move for it. so I said you know Max if you know if you change trumpet players you know think about me and, and every once in a while I call him and I, you know, I had a chance to, to go to California and I, and I started working out there with the Gerald Wilson band and uh, I got a call one day. He says, yeah, you've been worrying me all of you. You get your tail back here. 
and then started a band, a new band. And uh, that was where I was to meet Stanley Cowell for the first time. He kept Jimmy Merritt, and he introduced to play with me Odin Pope on uh, tenor saxophone. And for the next several years, that was... Uh, and for me, I, again, like with Jackie McLean, you know, this is still today, you know, for a trumpet player to get to play with Max Roach, it's, that's, the, that's the last word, you know, so... Um, Abstractions. Yeah. That was that, were you on that, was that you on that one? That's me, that on that whole thing. Mm-hmm. What's the album again? What's the album called? Members Don't Get Weary wow. on Atlantic. That's, that's mm-hmm. top 10. Mm-hmm. All timer. Yeah. I can see the connection between that and Strata East. That's right, because Max Roach and, and, and Mingus, they were going to start a record company. They did, on paper. It was called Debut Records. They wanted to have Miles together, so you can imagine the three of them trying to work something out. <laughs> you know, like something in business still. So it, I think Mingus issued one or a couple of things, but, you know, it never went anywhere. You know. And what made you want to do it and do it so seriously? I mean, it wasn't a little passing thing you put out. Well, Kenny, one of my heroes, Kenny Dorham, who I knew very well, because he was down there at the time at uh, Slugs during that period. Of course, he was already at the beginning of the modern jazz thing, you know. He's one of the originals along with Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis and Fast Navarro. So, you know, I'd like to sit up underneath uh, Kenny's arm, you know, because he was the kind of guy that he would say, well, you're either ready or you're not ready. You know, you have to pay attention to him because he's just a super giant on that trumpet. But he he um, had kidney failure, you know, and it started. And uh, I think me and Pat Patrick and a drummer named Sonny Brown, who was working with... Um, Roland Kirk at the time we went to see uh, Kenny at this hospital where he was and you know a few days later he was to uh, die and I realized nobody knows about Kenny Dorham and he doesn't there's no there's no royalties or anything coming all this great music he owned nothing you know and that, and, uh, that that's I think really got me going you know, I maybe I better make sure there's something that's that I own. You know, a lot of guys they they put out a lot of music but they don't own any of it. So, you know, you know the story about Duke Ellington. Well, I mean, he gets he's obviously the royalties as a composer but not the publisher. The band was kept going all those years off of his royalties as a composer, not the other part. So, I mean, it's okay. This is, you know, because you know, maybe we, 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 we wouldn't have gotten a chance to, you know, see Luke Ellington the way that we, we did, you know, with someone that, you know, handled did you the, see the business in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I saw him. And uh, there's a quick little 
story there, you know. He was always elegant, even in the dressing room. So one time I'm in the dressing room with him, just me and him, I'm talking to him, and it, 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 he had on, it was all silk he had on, you know. So so <laughs> everything was silk, you know. Even the slippers were like I don't know, you know. And um, he was he was very gracious. He's the Duke. Yeah. The Stratties thing was um, um, just about you know wanting to own own something. And so you went just in- to own it. That's not, but not to control necessarily. How, everything that's going on, but just to you know, to know that you at least you own the masters. You know what I mean? It's funny because I was talking to George Clinton the other day about um, his back catalogue, and he's only just getting paid forty years of you know, didn't get a penny. He just got you know nothing. Such naivety in a way, or was it, or was it just were you? Well, we could spend a whole several hours talking about how the record industry worked you had to know how the record industry worked uh, as an artist you get a call you make a record and if you of course if you are fortunate to, to have a song on it you know you get royalties as a composer um, one thing I can say about Alfred Lyons is that of course his publishing was as, as, as important as, as the Blue Note records that he put out but he never forced you to give him you know the publishing but most of the guys that started their careers with uh, with Blue Note they, they weren't interested in any of that side they were getting money as a, as a composer so if, if he was publishing it it was it was okay with them but uh, I mean um, did Lee Herbie Morgan? Hancock when he broke in and, and a few of the other guys um, see there was a guy who was the real great A&R guy, Ike Quebec. He actually helped the people that record. Well, he was an A&R guy as well as a saxophone player. That's right. And he was a guy that helped Alfred to people, you know, uh, Blue Note early. So Ike Quebec was kind of cooking Alfred up with all the musicians, signing, telling them to design. And he was a great player, musician of his own. And nobody talks about that. Right. Nature Uh, Boy. Yeah. And so... um, Alfred wasn't about capturing the publishing. Only if you wanted, you wanted to give him the publishing, fine. You know, people assume now, you know, that you have to give up, which you do. In today's world, you got to give that up if you want to get a deal. Yeah. Now, the big guys. It started with, um, I think, uh, the Rolling Stones, or maybe one of the other groups like them. Uh, Somehow, like a quarter, 25% or whatever, was got into the deal that, that the record company needs to have that to, to, to make the deal. Yeah, they're making a big deal for how many millions for the group and so on. And once that was set in stone, it then moved to 50% and 75% or whatever. You want to have a, re- a recording contract, you know, for a major independent situation, you know, you have to give up the publishing. But I don't want to fast forward to that yet because it is what it is, you know. If you get a break to, to get in, you know, then you can fashion things later on. But at the time when we when we started, 
it was it was just about we wanted to make sure that we that we owned the master and we were willing to to um, shop that to whoever wanted to you know then put it in a system and 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 um, and and run with it you know and uh, we knew we had something Stanley and I when we made the first record uh, and you know we asked around to the, to the major independents but nobody was interested in a big band it was a big band you know we just put a big band around the quartet setting that we were and um, when we realized that um, you know no one was interested to do it we said well we either let this sit or we we do something with it and uh, so we decided that we would uh, put it out and uh, we created a name which became Strategies but yes that's the one Music Inc however and I'll try to run through this very quickly. There are several steps that all major record operations or whoever had to go through in order for that finished big old 12 and a half by 12, 12 inch, 12, 12 inch, um, wound up in the hands of the fan, you know, in the record bin. And it started with uh, the master has to then be sent to a, a, a place where they make, you know, they take that, Lacquer. German efficiency, lathe, and right. they cut a lacquer. Yeah. Off of the uh, analog tape running. Cut a lacquer, it's given to the artist. You, you, you prove it, say, I like it. Okay. Record company tells the uh, lacquer guy, cut me a master. The master is cut and is sent to a metallurgy place. That's number now. So we're in, we're in process number three now. And these are all companies that you know you had to deal with at that time. It wasn't a you know all in one situation, you know. And uh, the metallurgy guys get that, and they take that master and they dip it in that special stuff. And up comes with electrolysis and everything a plate. Metal plate becomes a master. They make strack also on that. And okay. So now, where does this metal go? To the presser, right? But before going to the presser, you better have your hands on another company. This is process number five or four or five in, in, in this situation. Uh, who does the paper? Who controls the paper controls the record. Because you, you can't just give the fan you know the disc the vinyl disc they want to see what this looks like that's what gets them going you know and what years later you know it's like candy you know it's like I own this special thing it's mine you know and the cover sold the record as much as the music and so the paper guys control really the record industry and um, but there's a step in between there and that's the art. So in the old days, you know, with V-Loxes and all these sort of terms, you know, they create it, you know, on a cardboard and they give it to you, whoever is the art person, they look and see how you like it, how everything is shaped. And that goes off to printers, they make their negatives, blah, 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 and then that goes to, to the paper person. And um, they print up these covers. We're still not out of the woods yet because you have another company if it's not controlled by that uh, printing company, 
this box with it goes in the sleeve. Who controls the sleeve controls the record industry. You know, and you got to be able to have enough of these boxes that then goes to another person who assembles another company that assembles all of that onto this. All right. So this goes into that unit cost price on the record. And okay, now you can tell the metal guy to send the metal thing to the press because the presser is not going to do anything until he gets this. Because then now comes the automation, you know, and uh, the presser uh, gets the order. That's number six or seven in this thing, you know, process. And take that little glob of thing, which. Uh, you know, Exxon, Mobile, or whoever has dug up, you know, get the oil, and that's one of the products that comes out of it. You know, it's a little glob of vinyl made from oil. Pop it in the machine, and they put the plate on the machine, and boom, you got your first record. And the automation starts from there. Um, you better have a good house that's going to give you the right grains, because as you know, in today's world, um, People want to know, well, how much grains is in this vinyl? Otherwise, they don't want to buy it. In those days, nobody cared about what was the weight of the grain on the, uh, on the vinyl. You now know, it's going to be it heavy. Was, it was what it was. That was yeah. the interesting thing. Now, if, you, if you're under 100 grain, they don't want to buy it because it's not like, you know, the original somehow, you know. Yeah. Uh, Nothing worse than a, flat, than a light <coughs> disc. It's got to be solid. Right. You know, the analog is not coming <laughs> off right or something, you know. But basically, as a musician, as somebody who was very much in the scene, making music, jamming, sessioning, you and Stanley... There's an extra brain. There's left brain, right brain stuff. So normally, most musicians, my colleagues, they would not even consider to have to deal with anything like that. I, I never thought about it because it was like, for me, you know, like uh, breakfast or lunch or something. You know, I just was, I was able to read the menu and say, okay, those are the things and, 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 and get them done. But you don't get any of this done if you don't have some resources. So I got to fast forward, not fast forward, but fast back. The first record was done and we made, the, we made those processes. You know, I learned how to do it and we got all that done. However, that can sit in your living room, which it did. It sat in our living room, Stanley and I. And to make it okay, now how do we get to that? Well, the first thing we knew is to take it to the radio stations. Right. And there is in New York. where there's yes, and there's where things jumped off because the the, the great Billy Taylor was the musical director of, a, of a, a radio station called WRVR at the time. Uh, it's amazing, you know. He's a, one of our major musicians. People think that, that maybe musicians don't do other things. They have a mind; they can do other things if they want to. You know, you know. Oh, I think maybe John Coltrane was the only one who, 24/7, you know, dealt, you know, dealt with uh, that saxophone, which is the reason why you know he was able to give us what. You know. <clears throat> but you know, there's a couple hours in the day where if you want to do something else, you can. So um, they got our Music Inc. first uh, LP, and uh, the rest is history because it jumped off from there. And it moved across the radio, you know, the non-commercial radios. This was, you know, not AM, all, F, all FM. And uh, 
we started getting little what they would call tweets today you know from people which were called mom and pop stores and one here two there three there independent record stores little time hundreds of them at this stage most musicians if they had the wherewithal to have gotten to there they would have handed that over to somebody those businesses didn't know how to, to do that but again we we were locked in to wanting to do the whole thing you know wanting to know how this worked basically and um, so we got to the point where we had enough resources to move the records out of the living room into a little office and the rest of history from there too because then we had at the door four different uh, musicians who were listening to this on the radio and saying well who's it who did that you know oh these guys did that oh musicians oh, okay let me check that out and Clifford Jordan was the most important of them even though Gil Scott Heaven was to come later Gil, as far as we were concerned um, um, Clifford Jordan was just the right foil because we all idolize him as a saxophone player. He was one of our great saxophone players. But he too used a few hours of the day to have done what he did. He had already recorded um, Farrell Saunders. He was looking ahead to what was going on with the music. Of course, he had recorded himself. He had recorded Wilbur Ware, um, uh, Kenny, um, um, uh, the baritone saxophone player. I can't think of his name now. Um, Charles Davis? No, not Charles. Charles Davis did his own. Um, baritone. He was one of the originals with the with the um, modern jazz startup. Oh, goodness. I can't think of his name right now. Um, but he had about five. And he had um, uh, Joanne Burkeen's husband at the time, Charles Burkeen, who really, really was the original, as far as I'm concerned, with, you know, so-called avant-garde. I mean, he really had the right idea. Um, Cecil Payne was the other. So he had done uh, about five of these things, and he's, he came to us and he said, oh, okay, you guys are doing this? Well, I don't have to do no more work. So he you know, uh, put it in our system, you know, his Dolphy, what he called Dolphy series between, you know, Stratis Records, uh, Dolphy series, and um, those were... Uh, our first issuance uh, along with Stanley and Mines and that sort of you know jump started things and then other musicians who we were to help you know in the next uh, few years started coming and you know we, we added till we got to about uh, about 50 you know uh, at one point how many records so, were you selling? well we were selling enough to stay in business is that what five thousand fifty thousand i mean i've got no idea of because i hear of some you know records that was uh, it was not that big a number but let's put it this way the the idea once we decided we were going to help others to you know join up with what we were doing was that the musician was his own promotional tool now if you were working Chances are you, you, your LP would sell better than someone who wasn't working. 
So there were a number of guys who they just wanted to put something out, and we let them do it. And they and sold they on tour. It. They sold on the road. They just no, sold. well, they, they they had the records with them, and yeah. some of them did. Uh, those who were on totally unknown, uh, they you know their records didn't you know fly off the out of the bin like some of the others yeah. you know <laughs> so uh, it, but it was what it was at least they owned the master and they could say that they had, they had a calling card you know <laughs> but one day uh, a fellow knocked on the door and he said I'm Gil Scott Heron and he had just um, finished dealing with Bob Thiel with his Flying Dutchman you know Bob he had you know, of course impulse and he had Flying Dutchman and he, he, yeah, like for instance, what you just pulled up there. Um, the, no one knew of these fellows. The ensemble, but we helped them put it out. You know, so great record. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, like Shamik Farah, you know, and others like that. Descendants of but Michael Fischer. Shamik Farah somehow created a following. So even today, it, yeah. it still goes. So Bill uh, Lee was he with Bill well, Lee? Well, Bill Lee is the father of Spike Lee, and he was he he was on one of those records. He was with the, the he had his own. He had he had a couple of his own. Mike, Descendants of Mike and Phoebe, Mike, right? Mike, yes, which was uh, his musical family, and then of course he had the the uh, bass violin. You had it up here, the the the, the bass choir, yeah, bass yeah. choir, right? Yeah, exactly. Great stuff. Yeah. So just quickly, I'll, I'll you know I'll go through that since you know we're we're in the, this phase. So, you know, Gil Scott Heron um, uh, walked in one day and he said, you know, uh, you know, I hear what you guys are doing, you know, I think for my next thing I want to do my own, you know. In fact, I've already done it and, you know, will you put it out? Fine with me, you know. I, I actually, I didn't know who he was except for, I know, the, what's, this, what's the title of the revolution will not be televised. You know, that was big with Flying Dutchman. And I think he was unsatisfied with the results, you know, financially. So, um, he was, you know, we put it in the process. Put it in. See, Conduit, uh, Conduit is, a, is the name here. Stratis was facially a record company, but really it was a conduit for others to put their product out. No artist was on the contract. And people thought that we were crazy. The ones who found out, oh, it's Charles Tolliver and Stanley Cowell is doing this. Why are you putting, doing this without putting people on the contract? No, because that requires a whole nother business head, you know? And we were musicians. We just created something that happened to work. And the other guys wanted to do that. They could do it on their own. What we were doing, they could do it by themselves. But if you wanted to put it in our little mom and pop distributorship, boom, it gets a strategy's logo on it, and it goes out that way. But no artist was on the country. He was free to, 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 to move on whenever he wanted to. Didn't ask them to come. They can leave if they want to. So it was a very ahead-of-its-time formula for a record I label. I think so. Yeah, but, you know, this new... Uh, the, the, uh, what's the lady's name? Uh, Maria, yeah, they have a they have a, a a record situation that's pretty much off of how we how we did it. You had artists collected exactly. Uh, so we, we we put together the the uh, Gil Scott Heron thing, which was titled uh, "Went in America," and he had one track on there uh, it was called "The Bottle." Now I had a special guy who always told me if anything was going to take off jazz or whatever 
So I got a call one day and he says, you know, this, this, this one track on this LP, that's going to go. That's going to go. That's going to go. Okay. And it went. Oh, uno, dos, uno, dos, tres, cuatro. Song, na 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 
That became, you know, obviously the best-selling thing because, uh, in a way, it's not. It wasn't jazz per se, you know. Um, it was spoken word about a lot of things, which had, you know, a jazz feeling underneath in some of it, of, of the music, and so that took things to another level. Uh, we only asked the distributors, look, if you want to have that product, you have to move the rest as a business decision, you know? And uh, which is what record companies do anyway. You know, when they have those big mega things, they, they tell them, they say, okay, but I want, you know, those other things to move as well. So, you know, in the days of the LP, you know, the bins were filled with just about everything, you know? And, um, this was uh, this was exciting because it gave us an opportunity to really move, you know, all the product, you know. And uh, as I said, you know, it was like uh, 50 or more at, at one point. But then I started to burn out a little bit because I either had to make a decision to let business folk who that's their job to do that, you know, or continue on with it, you know, the everyday process. So around, and, and a lot of historical things uh, are, are off by some years. A lot of people think that around 1975, the record operation folded. Well, actually, it never folded. Not ever. Till today, it's still up and running. It's just up and running quietly. Uh, around 1979, you know, after almost 10 years, I decided, because the Japanese who we were dealing with, I think I must have been one of the few people that knew it, they said, you know, there's coming the CD, what we call a compact disc, so, you know, that's going to be the new format. But I wasn't ready to gear up mentally to deal with all that, so I quietly eased things down, and um, for most of the guys like uh, these, this fellow here, you know, things like that, you know, uh, let them uh, run with their own, and like that, and like that. Dick Griffin, Cecil. Yeah, and so on and so on. You Pain. know, let them run with their, their, their product themselves, mm. you know. And I took, a, I took a, about 10 year break, back from like 19, I mean, dealing with records, like 1980, 1979 to about 1989, you know. So in that period, if you're dormant on the surface, uh, you know, people think, well, that's folded as all over. But during that 10-year period, there were always leases going on all over the planet. Here, uh, Polydor in Europe with EMI, Australia, Japan, of course, with you know the record operations there. So they were being printed up in all those places and coming back to the to the bins in the United States and here in the UK. So um, the operation uh, went on that way, and I didn't have to deal with you know going into an office, you know, and it still was it still was going on. Around 1989, with the CD finally you know going to be the new format, I then 
took about 25 of the ones that I, I like to to have kept and uh, reissued them on CD. And, um, so who owns all the catalogue now? Well, the catalogue was, was never owned by anybody except the individual who owned the master. So not even yourself? You haven't got I own I own what I own, which is mine. Stanley owns what he owns. It's just his. Clifford Jordan, you know, before he died, owned what he owned. And all of the rest of the guys own what they own. And so... Um, it's the deal is as always as it was from the, the beginning in 1970, you know, whatever comes in goes to them, you know, on what uh, the deal is. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's great. And so that's just stayed the same. And you've never had it's any... As, it's now it's like a legacy historical thing. You've just, never had any you know, feeling of bitterness or anger or anything like that with a label, because most people do, you know, when they've left it or they've, they've put their time... But it in. wasn't about that. It was a yeah. conduit. They could, they could leave, again, they could leave any time they wanted to. And most of them stuck with, you know, using us as a conduit for most of the time. Except when I decided I wasn't going to have a run it, you know, regularly, yeah. you know, every day, you know, and then... So those were given back to, uh, you know, to, to the, the right to sell for, for themselves, to them. I mean, the thing about the label, though, I mean, that's incredible what you're saying, but there's a sense of a label here. It, there's a feel, you know, like a Blue Note or a Prestige or exactly. an Impulse, the artwork, all of that. That was on purpose because we knew it had to have this, this facial look and that it was an operation going on. And for many years... People assume we had some huge office and everything, and, you know, and all of the the part, working parts were going with that, uh, an art department, uh, a promotions department, etc., etc., etc. When there was none of that, but facially it looked that way. It's the great jazz illusion. Yeah, it was a great jazz illusion. <laughs> <laughs> Almost till today. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, and then there's some people who, who wanted to put this away. They wanted to put it to sleep. So when they weren't able to put their hands on how this worked, they wanted to put it to sleep. Oh, you know, it faded, it folded away. You know, but they never asked me. You know, no one you know who put it out there in the press that you know, you know, Stratus was a a great endeavor, but it it you know it it, it, it went away or it folded. It never. Older. Who came up with the name Strata East? I did. Well, it, the, the, the Strata part was uh, Stanley had some great buddies and great musicians in, in uh, Detroit. They called themselves the, uh, the Contemporary Jazz Quintet. They actually got a chance to make one record with, the blue, with, uh, with blue Note. And it was headed by Kenny Cox, wonderful pianist. And uh, they had a quintet, and but they they were already thinking uh, uh, business-wise way ahead. They incorporated, you know, their name Strata, and uh, they they even brought us there in a venue to play. You know, uh, the group that I had with Stanley, the, the first music gang, and so they were all in the business. So when we told them, hey man, we got this record thing going, they said, oh great. Well, why don't why don't you be our eastern leg? Eastern leg of what? Well, you know, this corporation thing. Nah, you know, you know, corporation. Because they were selling stock to their to their friends and local stuff, you know, like, you know, around Detroit. And, um, you know, I wasn't, it, my head wasn't into going, I didn't want to have to do this kind of business, you know, paperwork, you know, with that. I just wanted to, the records go. I, I would have come up with a name, you know, other than Strata, but they are, uh, 
Stan said, well, you know, why don't we use Strata? I said, okay. And they, so Strata hyphen East, Strata East. And so originally it was, it was going to be the Strata East Corporation, which worked in tandem with Strata in Detroit. Eventually, maybe the, you know, they would do an LP because they weren't into that. They were into, into venues, bringing artists in. You know, they had somehow a way of, with the Detroit, the famous Detroit uh, Art Museum to, to do concerts, you know. So that's how we got the name Strata. You know, um, I hyphenated it and uh, became Stratis. And then we had to create a logo off of their logo. And so I put a beehive on the, on the logo and that's how that happened. It's funny and ironic in a way because Strata was the starting point, but Strata East became the big, big label with mm-hmm. how many releases? 50? 50. Mm-hmm. 50. Yeah. I've got a few missing. <laughs> well, got, one of those have missing, you got stuff? One of have those you got, missing would be Max Roach's Zoom Boom. Yeah, well, I've got the CD of that. That's a very rare one to get. Well, we didn't issue that. There's a CD, the brown one, right? And boom. Yes, the brown one. That's the, the original. The original. The whole deal was up and ready to go, but um, Max's group, um, I think they decided they wanted a bigger thing at the time. So it never came out. It never came out, and it came out on CBS, if you remember. Right. I should find now, the CD. Yeah. I've got the Strawberry CD right. now. Japan. Now, to go back to what you were saying, you know, was there any anger or anything yeah. like that? I didn't care how guys want to do their thing. Yeah. I knew exactly what I wanted to do with Stanley and I, and we went straight ahead, pulled ahead with that. If someone wanted to pull out or whatever, then it's okay. So you didn't feel like you I felt were nothing. mentoring because, or... No, because because it's it was the, they owned it. Now, if we had put the resources into that, that never would have happened, obviously. You know, but if someone is on it, something, they have the right to do what they want to do it. But you chose who was on there, though. You had yes. the final say. Yes. And you had yes. a sense of yes. what you wanted. Absolutely. The quality control. Yeah. yeah. So inevitably, you're emotionally attached to it, even if you aren't. Yeah. Well, I was emotionally attached to, to Clifford Jordan. Because we just, he's just, he's just a wonderful musician. You know, of course, we were close, you know. So, you know, we're lucky. We got a guy you like. Plus he's a great musician. Plus he did all these recordings, and so that was different. Yeah. And Stanley Cowell talked to me about about him and how you met him. And well, it was with Max Rose at Max's uh, apartment, which I was to inherit later. Uh, uh, for the first rehearsal, after he told me, "You better hurry and get back here. You've been worrying me all the time about you know, band. I'm putting one together. You're you're in. Get here." And when I got to the first rehearsal. There was just young pianist Stanley Cowell that I was to meet for the first time and uh, till this day we are you know like that amazing yeah incredible musician more in there I mean there's a Hollywood story in there because there's other interesting you know, vignettes things that over those years but it's also the essence of that there's time the, there's Clyde Davis that's in here the almighty Clyde Davis why was he involved well Bill's got hair that this could be a, easily a movie made out of uh, our interaction together over that issue. 
which was well, he signed Gil Scott, which was now people said, see there, one of your one of the artists that you put out. He was not an artist of Stradley's records. He only we only put out the product of his, and we put it in our system. He can go to whatever record operation you want if you want to sign up with him. He said, but that's not right. It's not. That's not. Was not what this was about. I didn't want to have to be under having to control an artist. The legalities of all of that was, you know, there's people in business who should be in the business of doing that. That's, I mean, that's a part of business. Is how do you do a contract with an artist for a certain number of years and everything? This is fine. We wanted to do that, but. We wanted our records to go along with us, and they wanted to go from the jump. And that's what Mr. Clyde Davis wanted. He wanted different. He wanted to go from the jump with the record that was already gone platinum. And, you know, and um, this is a very interesting story, which is cannot be told over the air. Uh, a, a movie would have to be made about that. And the end place... But it was all good in the end. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was nothing... Negative. It's just an interesting human interest story. Yeah, you know how that worked and how to handle someone like Clyde Davis and how to handle someone like Gil Scott Heron. No, I didn't have any problem with Heron Gil Scott Heron because you know he knew what the deal was. So he just went on his merry way doing his thing. You know, he created something. He did that. and He moved on with whatever else what he, what he wanted to do. I mean, of course, he had unfortunate, you know, um, uh, personal problems. You know, later on. Uh, that affected his uh, career and everything, but not with that particular product he had with us. You know, it, it went on and on and on and on. You know, enabled him to have a nice uh, life to live for a while. Yeah. You were playing all this time, composing every day, all the time. Horace Silver? No, this came after Horace Silver. You know, I put all my time with Max and Horace. And Which record did you do with Horace? Uh, members, um, no, not members. That's Max. Um, In pursuit of the thirteenth um, note. No, what's the one with Horace is uh, Serenade to the Soul. Oh, with Stanley great. Tarantino, Psychedelic Sally, Roker. Psychedelic Sally's on that one, right? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. beautiful. And I had pneumonia of uh, Rudy's Van uh, Gogh studio on that. I didn't know it though. Not mother pleurisy, which they you know is next to pneumonia. I don't know how I did what I did on that record. <laughs> Actually, to tell you the truth, it was one of the sickest times. Well, that's a good one. But I was not going to miss that record. Eh? Of course not. You know, I would say we're one of the absolute greatest. And who? Oh, he's a he's a national treasure. National treasure. And sadly, not well these days. I mean, well, I mean, he's he's close up on ninety now, and I mean, you're lucky to have, to have any marbles when you get to you know that age. Yeah. I'm just blessed I, mean, I saw yeah, him. But he's, 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 he's where we, we want him to be now. I mean, at first we had we were concerned, but he's, you know, he's in, he's, um, in his home in, um, I think, Maranek or New Rochelle, somewhere like that, here in New York. Did you, um, did you have kids, married, mm-hmm. all of that? Mm-hmm. When was that? I have, my son has made us very um, proud, uh, I, um, you know, on the, the Bruno recording uh, with Love that I did, you know, the, the almost Grammy, the um, big band record was a big deal because uh, they weren't doing that 
sort of thing. And it just, Michael Cuscona made it happen. And so I told my son, who's a wonderful guitarist, uh, hey, you know, I'm going to put you on this record. He said, oh, Dad, you ain't kidding. I said, no, I am. Uh, get ready. When I call, your rehearsal, boom, you'll be there. And so he's on, he's, he's, he's on it. And um, after that, I just wanted to, you know, interject this. He um, got married and he moved to, to California. He said, Dad, I'm going, I'm going to L.A. Basically, he said, I'm going to Hollywood. I want to write uh, for a film. And he did something which I didn't teach him. I mean, everything else, you know, music and guitar, you know. I um, gave him some, some input on it. But what he did, he took the Empire Strikes Back, you know, John Williams' music. You know, people today, they have a workstation with Pro Tools, you know, all this, you know, nerdy stuff. You know, if you're good with writing music, you know, you know how it's done now. Uh, he, he stripped all of the music off of... Uh, you can do that with the software. All John Williams's great music out there and put his on. And you could not tell the difference that this wasn't, you know, this uh, huge sound stage or recording by a full orchestra and everything else. I didn't teach him how to do that. He, that's, that's something that he, you know, mastered on his own and that became his calling card. And um, um, I knew a few people and, you know, but, you know I me, mean? as you know, Hollywood, if you're going to break in there, you really got to get lucky, you got to get to know the right people. And after a couple of years, he um, he met a, um, a director who was now getting to be big, uh, who um, did the Dennis Quaid uh, movie last year, uh, some thriller, you know, that I came out with, in which uh, when he met my son, you know, he said, you know, what's your name? He says, my name is Chad Tolliver is his name, you know, and... Uh, he said, Tolliver. He said, that name sounds familiar. And so he said, yeah, yeah, he's son of uh, Charles Tolliver. And so he, um, that helped him get moving because this director was also, uh, you know, he he's, he's, likes music. Like Einstein liked to play the clarinet, you know. So this guy, he, he's, he was into jazz and stuff like that. That was, and so now I think uh, this summer they're releasing uh a remake of uh, The Raging Bull, which launched the career of uh, Robert De Niro. You know, they, re they redid it. Martin Scorsese. got the call. So, there, there you are. That's you amazing. Know. Well, congratulations. So, yeah. you kept it in the family. Yeah. 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 Still married? Well, um, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm married to all of the people that I used to be married to. I was only really, really married once. But the, 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 the good thing is, is when you have a, a long-lasting for life relationship with anyone that you were previously married with, if you can manage that as if you were still married, you know, but you're just not, you know, you know then that's, you're still married. So you're still married? Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you can manage that. Okay, you've got this uh, CD that's just come out. Um, tell me about it. Mosaic Select, Charles Tolliver, three set, CD set. Uh, that's a compilation mm -hmm. that started my uh, collaborations with uh, uh, Michael Kuskuna uh, at uh, Mosaic Records. And that came out a few years ago. Okay. It's got all your, all your great 
classic Stratarese recordings, right? That's right. That's right. Including Wilpens. That's right. Which is actually originally titled Wilpens Walk, isn't it? You know, I don't. Cecil never told me. I don't know. I've got a Wilpens Walk by Cecil okay, and so. one with Chico Freeman. Right. So he, he probably um, changed it. You know who was great at that was Lee Morgan and um, Andrew Hill. Andrew Hill had he changed the same song and put another title to it. Put another title to it and off you go. So he, at the Library of Congress, he and, and Lee Morgan probably have the most number of copyrights than anybody with jazz. Effie. Mm. I played that last night at Ronnie's. And you still enjoying it as much, performing more than ever? Where do you feel that I you... Approach, I approach this that I'm no older than 22 or 21 when I met Jackie McLean. I, as long as I keep that head on me, then I, you know, I'm good to go every time I hit the bandstand. And do you feel that people are reacting differently to music now to say 10 years ago? I mean, the essence of what you're doing, is it? how is it at the moment? Um, well, for people who come to hear me are hardcore fans of me or they're bringing people along with them who are who become you know who are have the ear for listening for jazz um so i would say that um people who come to hear you know me are they're there because uh, you know they know something about you know, my music or they want to they want to hear me because of the rare opportunities they've, they've had to hear me in basically any of the contexts here in Europe you know um, in these uh, last years or so but I mean I approach it uh, the, to um, give them uh, the real deal you know no gimmicks just for lack of a better word, hardcore jazz, you know, music. Did you know that some guys, they don't like the word jazz? But it's, it's a part of the dictionary that we can't take out because it really is descriptive. However, there is a, there is a bit of a redefining of it and, and, and marginalizing it with other forms of music and, and calling it jazz. So it's confusing to young people right now because they heard from their parents or other people that you know jazz has a special thing and they're listening for that and and a lot of times in, in today's performances they're not getting that so we got to counteract that you know one of the people that i saw last year who i thought did a great job of just doing the jazz thing hardcore um slightly younger generation to you and i hadn't seen him for quite a long time was kenny garrett that's interesting because Kenny does have access to um, a higher echelon of um, booking possibilities coming off Miles Davis. So he should be able to be presented uh, just about everywhere where all the other marquee names are. Uh, but he is, he's, he's uncompromised. He's, he's, he's playing the, the real deal. So, you know, that's something to consider as, as well.
But I, I think it, it, the, the thing is, is to not give up what you're doing. And when the time comes, things open up, you're there to, to deal with it. If you say, okay, I'm going to move off into something else, and then when things open up and you're not there, then what's the point of having put all that time into something? You know, it's just, it, for me, that doesn't compute. So it's just, I'm going to, you know, stay right at the real deal all the time, you know. Donald Bird. Yeah, oh, yeah, giant. Yeah. Up there. Big hero. Rock, Rock Creek Park. Well, Rock Creek Park. And also, you know, when the fusion thing came along, he's really before Miles with that one. I mean, the Blackbirds, till today, I like that. Yeah, you know, and um, but all this stuff you were doing on Strata East yeah, had a kind of same kind of yeah funk yeah open yeah, and fire yeah yeah and um, yeah Donald Byrd unfortunately we lost him recently but uh, yeah he's very important he was one of the artists that you know as teenager kids we stay up all night listening especially those those records he made with Jackie McLean so I mean I already knew all of that stuff verbatim by the time I got a chance to you know play with Jackie with the, with the only difference is he had moved on to something <laughs> you know something else that he wanted to do but uh, the recordings that, that, that Donald made with, with Jackie we ate and slept those as kids you know so who would you have loved to have uh Put out on your label on Strateries. You mean who I would have l- uh, let yeah. <laughs> put their product out you know on, what I'm on our thing? Gary Bartz feels like it's the kind of thing that you could have put out. He probably would have, uh, if, if, but he wasn't living in New York at the time. Oh, was it a strictly New yeah, York he was thing? Still, yeah, he was still working out of Baltimore. So yeah. was it a New York thing? You had to be in New York too? No, 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 absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, we had guys as far away as Bahamas. I think we need to continue this the next time you come, Charles. Yeah. yeah. This has been amazing. Yeah. The Hollywood story, man. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.